everyone, I'm Rachel and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning. Today's reading comes from Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Well, if there are primary school age children in your life, I'm sure you're familiar with the school reader. But there's one school reader that has become more famous than the others. It's called The Pet Goat. It was written by a man called Zig Engelman and it was designed to teach young students how to pronounce and read words that end with the letter E. You know, words like saw. That's how the villain in the story ends up after being head-butted by the goat. The pet goat starts this way. A girl got a pet goat. She liked to go running with her pet goat. She played with the goat in her yard. But the goat did some things that made the girl's dad mad. The goat ate things. He ate cans and he ate canes. He ate pans and he ate pains. He even ate capes and caps. See, it's a book that's designed to help us read the letter E. But what makes the pet goat stand out from all the other thousands of school readers is that on September the 11th, 2001, President George Bush happened to be reading The Pet Goat to a classroom of children when he was informed about the attacks in New York. The president sat in that classroom for a further seven minutes reading and being read to from The Pet Goat. By the time he'd finished in the classroom, America was in a crisis moment. Well, less than 20 years later, we find ourselves today in another time of uncertainty. Now, this is obviously different to September 11, but it's still a testing time. And some of us may be asking questions like, where is God in all of this? Some of us may be wondering how a loving God could let this happen. You might be wondering how we're to process what's happening in our world right now. Today, I want you to come with me to the Psalms, especially Psalm 11. Because the Psalms are a great part of the Bible to be reading at times like this. The Psalms acknowledge the, the brokenness in this world. They acknowledge the pain that God's faithful people experience. You know, even just a cursory or a very brief reading of the Psalms will show you that the Christian life or the Christian existence, well, it's not just one of laughs and fun and endless good times. See, the Psalms help us to see how raw our world is. 
how painful and frustrating our world can be. And they give us a language to, to cry out to God and a framework with which to process the brokenness in this world. I want to give a, a big thank you to Tim Keller. He gave me a leg up in understanding this psalm. Tim Keller is an American pastor and Bible teacher and author and much of what I have to say to you today comes from what I learned from Tim Keller and the video that he produced on this psalm. If you want to hear it better, you can go and look at that on the YouTube. But here's the big idea for today from Psalm 11. When faced with a crisis, we have two options. Option one is to flee, to run away. In the way that the psalm puts this, it's to flee to the mountains. That's option one. And option two is to find our refuge in God. That's where the psalm is driving us. You know, our problems today, they're not just related to sickness. We might be struggling with loss of work or loss of income. might even be struggling with a loss of identity that you might be facing that's coming up with a new job or a change in job. Perhaps you're also struggling with the idea of homeschooling children and the loss of autonomy that goes with having kids just at home all the time. Even before sickness, we're living in a difficult time. It's less acute than September 11, isn't it? But it's going to be here for a while as well. And so you might be wondering, how do we respond as Christians? And it's no surprise then, is it, that the driving emphasis of this psalm is to direct us to find our refuge in God. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to have a look with me. Please open them to Psalm 11. And, and as you do so, you'll see right at the front of this psalm that this is a psalm of King David. Now, King David, he's an impressive figure in the Old Testament. He's, he's far from perfect, yet he has a heart after God's own heart. Now, for David, life wasn't always easy. His life hung in the balance at a number of places, a number of times in his life. And in Psalm 11, it seems as though things are not going well for David. We're not told exactly what's happening, but we know it's not good. And it seems as though David's advisors or his counsellors are speaking to him to caution him. You know, back in the classroom with George Bush on September 11, it was one of his advisors, actually it was his chief of staff, Andrew Card, who whispered into his ear while he was reading that story, America is under attack. And here in Psalm 11, I want you to see that it's potentially David's advisors who speak to him in verses 1 to 3. If you've got your Bibles there, just note the quotation marks. They kind of help us to see which bits in this psalm are the advisors speaking or the people or the counsellors and which bit are David's own thoughts or his own words as well. So the psalm starts in this way with the advisors speaking. They say to David, flee like a bird to your mountain. See that there in verse 1? Jared Wilson in his excellent commentary on the Psalms suggests there's another possible way to translate this sentence. He puts it this way. Fly away to the mountains, little birdie. And when put that way, doesn't it capture kind of the hopeless position that David finds himself in as he confronts a powerful adversary? This is a, a David and Goliath moment, isn't it? Flee, little birdie. That's the advice of his counsellors. And he's to flee because, well, his adversaries are about to attack. Have a look at verse 2. 
it says, For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Can you see what's happening here? David's adversaries, they're ready to pounce and they're shooting from the shadows at the unseen foes. As I read this, it kind of, it conjures up in my mind that the modern sniper, you know, up until relatively recently, snipers were, were very much looked down upon in war because it was considered beyond the pale to a, attack an unsuspecting enemy. And yet that's what's happening here for David. The archers are shooting from the shadows. He, he can't even be sure which direction he should turn to face his attacker. Situation is serious. In fact, the foundations are being destroyed. The world as David knows it and as his advisors know it is crumbling down around him. This is a bad day in David's life. Not just a I burnt the toast and I spilt the milk kind of bad day, but rather everything around him is collapsing. And his counsellors, his advisors, they say to him, flee, little bird, to the mountains. Run, they say. I wonder who you take advice from. Perhaps you've got a set of trusted advisors that you rely on. Maybe they're parents or friends who provide assistance and help. Who helps you when things are going pear-shaped? Who helps you when the foundations are collapsing? Most advisors are trying to do the best to help you, but it doesn't always make them right, does it? Advisors get it wrong sometimes. And in this psalm, David makes his position clear right from the beginning of the psalm. He says this, In the Lord I take refuge. See, despite the wicked bending their bows, In the Lord, David will take refuge. Despite the arrows coming from the shadows, in the Lord, David takes refuge. Despite the very foundations being destroyed around him, in the Lord, David takes refuge. And the remainder of this psalm is, I think, David's explanation of why he'll seek refuge with the Lord rather than flee to the mountains. It's an explanation of why he's going to do that. I'm very grateful for Tim Keller's insight. He suggests three reasons that we should take refuge in the Lord. Three reasons. You might like to jot them down if you've got a pen and paper there. The first in verse 4 is that we see God is in control. The second reason we see in verses 4 to 6, and that is that God is watching us. His eyes are open and he sees what's going on and he judges all. I think Tim Keller puts it this way, The test has started. And thirdly, in verse 7, those who are upright, well, we'll see that they will see God's face. And so, David is not going to run for the hills or run for the mountains. And the first reason he's not going to do that is because he knows that God is in control. And we see that in verse 4. Have a look at the verse there with me. This is what we read. The Lord is in in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. 
See, David sees and knows that the Lord is enthroned and in control. Jared Wilson puts it this way. He says, he, that's God, is unperturbed by the apparent chaos unleashed in human affairs. It's not that God is unconcerned, but that he's unperturbed. See, God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his control. You know, I think many of us will have realised that this is a, an easy thing to say, and yet it's a very hard thing to actually trust. I think there's a number of reasons why that might be the case. Maybe we don't like the direction we think God is taking things. Or maybe we think deep down that we actually know a better way than the way that God seems to be planning things. It's also hard because so often it does actually feel like we are in control, that we have the steering wheel of life, so to speak, in our grip. When my boy Gus was about five years old, we were at my parents' farm and I was driving around in one of the farm vehicles. The the vehicle's kind of a a cross between a small truck and a tractor. It's one of those really safe and easy to operate vehicles. It has kind of three seats in a line at the front there and, and Gus was sitting next to me and he put his hand over on the steering wheel. He thought he was steering through the paddocks as we were driving all of about three kilometres an hour. Now, of course, what Gus didn't know is that my hand was firmly on the bottom of the steering wheel on the other side. But, but that didn't really seem to matter, though. He just had this great look of joy on his face as he drove through the paddocks. After a few minutes of driving through the paddocks, we got to where we were going and I got out of the truck and started to do the jobs that I had to do. And then to my surprise, I heard the truck turn on. Now Gus had got out and turned the key and the ignition on the truck and he turned it on and it leapt into life. Now fortunately the handbrake was on and it wasn't in gear and, and on nothing happened. But on hearing the truck start, I spun around to see what was going on and I saw Gus at that moment sitting in the driver's seat and I also saw him burst into tears. He was inconsolable. He'd scared himself. It's all very well to be driving with me sitting next to him, but when you turn the thing on and Dad's not even there, well, that changes everything. It's truly terrifying. Today, I hope you can take some comfort knowing that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He's in control. You know, this virus, it might have taken us by surprise. We might have have realised now how vulnerable we are as people and how unprepared we are for things like this. We might have realised how inept we are at steering the ship of life. The truth is God is in control and and he's not surprised. He's not perturbed. And so David, he's not going to flee to the hills, but rather he's going to take refuge in the Lord because he knows that his God is in control. Now, maybe at times like this that we actually need to repent from a previous attitude where, where we thought we knew better than God. Perhaps we thought we could do better than God at steering the ship. Maybe we didn't like the route that God had chosen. Or maybe we just had our own interests at heart. Now here's the truth, isn't it? God is in control. 
Now, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that's really what this is called. It, it, it should be, and it can be a great comfort for us in times like this. But what I really like about Psalm 11 is that it doesn't just leave it there. It doesn't just leave us with the need to repent of those times when we thought we knew better than God. But it also goes on to show us what our role is in times like this. And we see that in verses 4 through to 6, at least the second half of verse 4 through to verse 6. We see that God is watching or examining us. I want you to see that God cares how we, have, how we live. Let me read to you from the second half of verse 4 through to verse 6. This is what it says. He, that is God, observes everything on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. So can you see from this passage that that God is examining us? All of us, both the righteous and the wicked, you and me. No one's left out in this. He's observing and examining us and he cares about what we do. He cares about our behaviour. He cares how we respond when we're faced with a time of crisis. And I think this means that we should be concerned with how we care for each other at times like this. That we should be pursuing ways in which we can help each other and support each other and love each other. You know, today there are plenty of reasons for us to flee to the mountains, to hide. But perhaps instead we should be thinking about how we can support our families and and how we can support others in our society and how we can care for those who are vulnerable at the moment. Maybe for you that means going to work and doing your job. Many of us are essential workers. If that's you, I want to say a big thank you for your perseverance and your bravery and your willingness to help. And for the rest of us, there there are other opportunities for us not to flee to the mountains. Now such a great time for us to be all reaching out to friends and family. Now I've heard the expression switch a handshake for a phone call. Great idea, isn't it? Who could you ring today? Perhaps you could just pray. Wouldn't it be great if we came out of this as better prayers? Maybe you could invite others to join you at church online. Wouldn't it be great if we came out of this with friends who'd heard about Jesus because online church was something they could actually do on a Sunday morning? I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here though. We do of course need to follow the advice of our government in terms of staying at home and social distancing and those sorts of things. That's a way in which we love for others. It's a good way for us to respond. But staying at home doesn't have to mean hiding or running to the mountains. If you're an avid social media user, then you may have noticed a quote from Martin Luther that's been circulating around the social media platforms for the last few months. Martin Luther lived during the time of the plague and he wrote to a friend of his, another reformer, John Hess, he wrote a letter to him, the letter's actually called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague, kind of fitting with Psalm 11 which talks about fleeing to the mountains, right? And this is what Martin Luther says to John Hess. 
I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. And then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbour needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it's neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. So Luther said in a letter to John Hess. Great words for us to think through at a time like this, aren't they? I want to be clear here, this is, is not a salvation issue. God's not watching to see if watching to see how we behave in terms of whether we're saved or not. The story of the Bible is very clear about this. Salvation is found in Jesus and by trusting in him alone, you could flee to the mountains and hide away for the entire of this pandemic and still be saved, of course. But God does care about how we behave in this world. He is observing us and he wants us to grow to be more like Jesus each day. Put succinctly, don't flee to the mountains because God is watching over us and testing us. The last point I want you to see in this, in this psalm comes from verse 7. It's this, the upright will see the face of God. And it seems that this too is part of the motivation for David not to flee to the mountains. The promise of seeing the face of God in the midst of the chaos that's involved in engulfing David. So how do we do that? How do we see the face of God? Well, I want you to remember today that we see the face of God by looking to his son, Jesus. At the start of John's Gospel, we read this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father. And then later on, in John's Gospel, and still in chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, I think part of the benefit in this psalm is that it points us back to God who is in control and we see him, we come to know him through the person of Jesus. He's the one that can bring us into God's presence. And I think Standing still is a really hard thing to do in a crisis. And I think part of the encouragement in this psalm here is to flee actually to God, to find refuge in him. And we do that today through the person of Jesus. It's through Jesus that we come to God. So don't flee to the mountains, but instead run to Jesus. See, in Jesus, I want you to remember as well, we have a God who knows what it is to suffer and even to die. A God who knows what it is to sacrifice and face loss. Wouldn't you rather be there under the wing of a God like that than alone in the mountains? I don't know what President Bush did after he'd finished reading The Pet Goat. 
I'm not sure what his advisors or what his counselors told him to do. But as we face our own troubled times today, I hope you're able to take refuge in the Lord, knowing that he's in control, knowing that he's observing and watching us, and knowing that we come to him through Jesus. That's what this psalm teaches us. Well, let's pray together. Almighty God, we know you as a God who's in control of this world. We know that your plans and purposes will be accomplished. We want to rest and trust in you, knowing that you are loving and merciful, that you are just and righteous. In the midst of these troubling times, we ask that you would help us to keep growing to be more like Jesus. Help us to be a people who love abundantly and are willing to sacrifice much. And help us to be bold for all the right reasons. Father God, when we're tempted over the coming weeks to run, help us run to Jesus. Help us to look to him and to rest in him, knowing that he's purchased and redeemed us and knows us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.